Okay, so this is a brief overview of the medieval period, and we're going to start with a film clip. So you just want to keep your eyes up on screen here. A while back uh, in the 1990s, at some point, uh, Kenneth Branagh, who's the, the great Shakespearean uh, uh, artist, uh, actor, um, did his version of Henry V. And wow, what a blockbuster of a film that was. Um, even if you weren't a Shakespeare fan or, or didn't understand Shakespeare easily, um, this film was something else. And um, the film really centers on one particular event in the medieval period. In 1415 at the Battle of Agincourt, the English fought the French in France. And it was all about contested territory, who was going to rule these different territories. And in fact, the English were attempting to rule a good part of France back then. And the Battle of Agincourt was a key battle in, in history because it's the first time that the Welsh longbow, which is uh, you know good six feet high and would take the strength of an elephant to pull the string back, and the arrow could be shot about three to four hundred yards in the air and land with pinpoint accuracy within 10 or 15 feet. Um, that when the, the Welsh longbow came out of the hills and became a part of the English army, um, it had a devastating effect on the knight in armor. The knight in armor is this uh, tremendous uh, two-ton fighting machine on a horse, uh, but the horse and the knight can't really do anything when the arrow is coming from three or four hundred yards away. So the movie uh, Henry V with Kenneth Branagh centers on this battle, um, and it's not the battle scene that I'm going to show you. It's actually the speech that Kenneth Branagh gives just prior to the battle, and it's considered to be one of the great speeches, uh, uh, inspirational speeches ever given in the history of all of mankind. And here it is. Of fighting men, they have full three score thousand. That's five to one. Besides, they are all fresh. These are fearful odds. Oh, that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland. Oh, my fair cousin. We are marked to die. We are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Brother, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and grounds for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named and arouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is Saint Crispin's. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget. 
Then all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few. We happy few. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves a curse they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. After that, a band of about uh, 500 Englishmen slaughtered about 17,000 Frenchmen in less than an hour. It was an astonishing defeat on the part of the French. Um, so I show you that clip because, because the Middle Ages is about honor. It's about glory. It's about loyalty about all of these kinds of values that we definitely noticed when we were with the Romans, you know, and go and die with honor. But there's something different about this, and that's what we're going to explore as we go through this process. Okay, so the Middle Ages. Oh yes, we have to get there first. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'd like a Coke, please. <laughs> and our landing is at Cardiff in Wales. Well, because the film that we're watching, Castle, is the conflict between the English and the Welsh. And uh, so that's the location I chose for that. All right, medieval Europe. It's about knights in armor. It's about damsels in distress. It's about chivalry. It's about all of these great themes that come out of this period. And of course, uh, it would be arguable to say uh, that this period generated more literature and more film than almost any other period in history, even more than the Romans, really. The medieval period, if you go down through the, the lists of films made and tick them off according to historical periods, you'd be astonished at how many films actually come out of the Middle Ages. And even some that you wouldn't think are connected like Lord of the Rings, but are clearly connected to the Middle Ages. I mean, where does the Lord of the Rings take place? Middle Earth. Hello, the Middle Ages, right? I mean, Tolkien was immersed in the Middle Ages. So this is medieval Europe. Okay, so we have a number of foundational questions. And again, because you have these in front of you, you don't have to take them down. We're just gonna consider them. First, was the life of labor miserable or reasonable? We're already beginning work on this. What was on the hearts and minds of medieval Europeans? God or life on this earth? And who should be held accountable for the devastation of the Black Death? That's the last question we're going to deal with 
before we finish up the, the course in October. And you're going to look very carefully at the Black Death and um, ask who is responsible and you're going to dig into um, what happened there and um, determine you know, what that was all about. Okay. All right. So how do we know what we know about the Middle Ages? Primary sources, of course. We, we, I think you guys have gotten to that idea quicker than anybody else. You've understood intuitively right from the very beginning that history is built on primary sources, on eyewitness accounts and uh, other kinds of artifacts that build history. But you also know that history is generated after history happens by those who write history. That's the secondary sources, the secondary historians of which you are now becoming one. As you write these DBQs, you become secondary historians interpreting it for yourself, okay? So for example, this painting from the Doomsday Book, which was a census book showing a manor and the serfs who were working the manor becomes a primary source that tells us how we know what we know. These are other images that would show you what life was like in the Middle Ages, some of which you'll probably see in your DBQ. They're actually already there pretty clear what you're looking at. How you interpret it is up to you. Okay, before we move on into the medieval period, I have to pause and go back for a second to the fall of Rome. And one of the reasons for the fall of Rome, one of the many reasons that scholars identify, which is the rise of Christianity, that Christianity took away from the Romans their sense of their empire and that the central message of Christianity was turn the other cheek and that uh, the only thing that you really should be concerned about is heaven, the life after this life, the eternal life. And so mm, this arguably is one of the reasons for the, the fall of Rome and the, the great empire. Um, we already understand that already, but I want to go back for a second just to clarify some things with you, okay? All right. So. I, th I think in general, people at your level are only just beginning to understand the differences between the great religions. And unfortunately, when Mr. Robbs left, we lost world religions as a course in the social studies, which is unfortunate. I actually would, if I were in charge of things, uh, that would be a foundational course that you would take either in the eighth or ninth grade. It would be required. The world is about religion, and you really should know the differences between the great religions. And I think to a certain extent, you do. But let's go through it one more time. So Judaism, which is the first monotheistic religion, the first religion with the single God in a world full of polytheistic cultures, many gods, Judaism, its central tenet that you have to understand is that the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. If you're Jewish and you're a practicing Jew, whether you're religious or not, cultural Jew, not cultural Jew, comes down through the matrilineal line, whatever the case may be, if you're Jewish, the whole point of being Jewish is that you're still waiting for the Messiah to arrive. And the point of your orthodox life as a Jew, if you're a practicing Jew, is to study really, really, really hard all the time to prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. You need to know if the Messiah has arrived or not. Hmm? The Messiah is... is he who comes to save the world, to save us from ourselves, okay? So the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. Now, Christianity, on the, on the other hand, the Messiah has already come and in the form of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was a Jew, 
as a young man, he begins to feel his power as uh, someone called by God to save the rest of the world. And uh, that whole story is the story of uh, courses and courses you'll take on religion. But the idea here is that some within the Jewish community understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He had come to take the sins of the world on his shoulders, to die for those sins, to rise up to the right hand of the Father, and to move forward with a new religion, Christianity, although Jesus never really would have, uh, at that particular time, nobody would have really known that that was happening, but that's what did happen was the rise of Christianity. So here we have these two great religions in the world, Judaism and Christianity, and what separates them is one still waiting and the other one knows that Jesus is already here. And wow, has this resulted in so much bloodshed over the years, just simply over the fact that this group, the Christians, believe that the Messiah has already arrived. Yeah, absolutely. The conflict in the Middle East between Jews and, and uh, Christians and Arabs is largely over these kinds of issues, okay? Then in the 600, 600 years after the birth of Christ, we see the rise of the third great religion, which is Islam. And Islam's prophet is Muhammad. And Muhammad receives the word of God, of Allah. And the word of God says, to put it in a nutshell, that there is no Messiah. Christ was not the Messiah. The Messiah has not come. There's not going to be a Messiah. Christ was merely one of another of a long line of prophets. And that Muhammad was the last of the prophets. That's the important thing about Islam. Muhammad is the last of the prophets, the last to receive the word of Allah. And that word is translated into their sacred text, which is the Quran. Okay? So you have these three great religions jockeying with each other for souls in the world and for political and economic power. And it's all very complicated. Uh, but really what it boils down to is that Christianity is set apart because it believes that one of its own is literally the Son of God who rose up and took the sins of the world on his shoulders through the whole crucifixion narrative, okay? So what's unfortunate, this is my opinion now, what's unfortunate about this is they're all from the same God, whether it's the, the, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, the God of Islam, it's all the same God, it's a single God they're just different words for that God. And they're all, everybody uh, in these religions are all descendants of the same man, Abraham, in the beginning. So after Noah's flood and after everybody's gone and et cetera, et cetera, and out of this comes Abraham. And from Abraham begat, 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 begat. And they don't have any dispute about that. But how they diverge as religions and how they treat people and the, the creeds of these religions and what they require you to do are quite different. Okay, so again, back to this question, why all the fighting and the hatred and the pain and suffering between these three religions uh, when really mm, the only thing that divides them is this very abstract idea of Christ being the Son of God, okay? Anyway, so at least we understand what we're dealing with as we go into the medieval period because it's the rise of Christianity. The medieval period is the rise of Christianity and its competition against Islam as Islam rides, rises later in the Christian period and begins to jockey for power and territory in Europe and North Africa and Eurasia. 
Okay, now we have to also pause for a moment before we get into the real content of this thing to take care of some labels. Now you know me, right? I'm not requiring a whole lot of specific date work from you. I'm not asking you to do multiple choice questions and to say who's this person and on what date did this happen and that sort of thing. But I would like you to at least be aware of the labels and the general timeline. So we have the fall of Rome, which is this. Everybody look over here for a second. The lights go out on Europe, okay? Sorry, keep the light off. The lights go out in Europe. As Rome falls, so falls its laws, its law and order, respect for law and order. There's a general chaotic period after the fall of Rome and the barbarians come swooping out of Germania and from uh, Saxony and from the north and from the east and from the south and uh, divide Rome up. Rome is, is divided. In the end, we see the fall of Rome. Okay. What ensues after that, many scholars call the Dark Ages. So the question for you here is, why is it called the Dark Ages? And this is a question you really want to pay attention to. Okay. Why is this period after the fall of Rome, roughly 500 years after the birth of Christ, 500 AD, all the way up to 1000 AD, the first millennium, why is that period called the Dark Ages by many scholars? Okay. Then we see the very intense rise of Christianity through this Dark Age period, so-called, and we move into the medieval period, which is this period roughly between 800 all the way through until about 1200 years after the birth of Christ. And then we get the high Middle Ages when the lights come back on again. So the, here's the question for you. The question is, what exactly is the light? Should sound familiar to you. What exactly is it? What is the light? And what exactly brought the lights back on again in Europe? We're really going to be paying attention to that question. What brought the lights back on again in Europe? Okay, so these are our general time periods taking us all the way up to the Renaissance, which we'll start into when you come back to me in term two. So roughly about 1300. So we're looking at about a thousand years of history here that are called the Middle Ages, but are divided up into these particular historical labels, okay? And that's just understanding that, having a handle on that is the cool thing here. Okay, now we're gonna pause for a second. Yes, yes. We're gonna pause for a second. You don't need to take notes on this. Just half close your computers for a sec, half close. Because obviously the medieval period, as we noted yesterday when I showed you that clip about uh, the heralds, is the period when this concept of identifying yourself in battle for the sake of uh, safety and security and making sure that the people that you were fighting with knew who you were and the people you were fighting against knew who you were and then all the complications that follow that which are family uh, history and uh, genealogy and the passing down of lands and status and all of that kind of thing all amounting to this business called heraldry and the so-called coats of arms. What I did is I briefly created my own coat of arms for you and it's a little bit of a demo for what you're going to do at the end of the term in terms of presenting your own flag, but it's also just a very simple demo of what you're going to be doing in pages to create your own template on this, okay? All right, so I start with this yellow background. Why? Because everybody in my family went to Punahou. We're all buff and blue, all of us. 
from the seventh grade. Actually, my father was there in the 1930s. He was one of the first classes in uh, in, in early or, or yeah early uh, Punahou history. Anyway, I go on too long. But basically, the background color is yellow because that's one of the colors, buff and blue, of Punahou. Okay, so that's the all right. So the shield is obviously blue, and now we have buff and blue. Go Punahou. Although that's not what I've been saying. Okay, so we start with my father's side of the family, the Rapun side of the family. So my father is a Latvian German. He is of German descent, but his country of origin is Latvia, which is on the Baltic coast, Lithuania, Latvia. Um, they're you know, on, the, on the western edge of Russia. And so this is the Latvian flag representing my father's side of the family. Now it turns out that Rapun actually means partridge. And although this isn't a partridge, it's actually more of a pheasant. There's some dispute about exactly whether it's a partridge or a pheasant, uh, but whatever it is, it's a game bird of some sort. That's the origin of the name Rapun. And it actually used to be, in the old days, Rapun von Erzel. Von meaning from, Erzel meaning a little island off of Latvia where the family originated, okay? So the Rapun line here. Now there's more to my father's side. Obviously, he was the first of the Rapoons to go to Punahou, and then there would be a long line of Rapoons, including me, that would go to Punahou as well. But also, my father went to Harvard. He went to Harvard as an undergrad, and then he matric matriculated into their medical school and graduated as a, as a doctor from Harvard, uh, came back to Hawaii, went off to World War II, et cetera, et cetera. So the family affiliation has been with Harvard because I have a brother, Paul, who went to Harvard and uh, like four or five nieces and nephews who also went to Harvard over the years. So the family is very much connected with that school. We've given them a boatload of money over the years. And we also have those, I don't know if you've ever seen those Harvard chairs that, that have veritas on the back, truth, if you didn't know what veritas meant, okay? So that's the father side of the family. Now, on my father's mother's side of the family, this is my father's father's side, my father's mother's side, her name was Lewis. My grandmother's name was Lewis. And that's Welsh. And that's where I get the Welsh part here. That's why the Welsh flag is hanging back here. And that's why I say what I say about the English. Okay? So we're very intensely Welsh. The German-Latvian part never, never comes up in my family. We're always talking about the Welsh side. I don't quite understand why one quarter turns into such an obsession, but there you go, okay? So that's the Lewis side, and of course there's the Welsh flag, okay? So there's father's mother and father's father there. And then there's my mother. So I've waited for my mother because she's gonna go in the center of this thing. Her maiden name was Engel, which is my middle name. It means angel in German, okay? She was actually a uh, uh, a young girl from Pennsylvania. She was Dutch, Pennsylvania Dutch, they call it, but Pennsylvania Dutch German, and the last name was Engel. Now, I put her in the center, and I put this image of a covered bridge in the Midwest, uh, Indiana, somewhere, for a reason. My mother, God bless her, had seven children. One girl, and then she tried to have another girl, and six boys later, she gave up. I was the last. I was four years after the previous boy, so clearly I was a mistake. She was already 42 by the time that she had me. I had no business being in this world, and I think about that every day, that I was a mistake. Now, my mother 
had to raise, because my father was a doctor and was away most of the time, she had to raise these seven boys, all of them football players and wrestlers. And we fought like cats and dogs. In fact, we tried to kill each other many times, many times. My brother John and I got into a fight when we were building a chicken coop at, my, at our place over in Kahalu. He took a big giant two by four piece of wood and tried to strike me on the head with it and kill me. I dodged it and put my arm up and blocked it, almost broke my arm, and I grabbed a pitchfork and attempted to run it through his stomach. He dodged that too, whereupon my mother showed up, ergo the bridge, because my mother's favorite song was a Simon and Garfunkel song called Bridge Over Troubled Waters. That's what she was in this family. She was the bridge over troubled waters. And she was a saint because, for example, with that day that I fought my brother over the chicken coop, the, the saintly thing that she did was not tell my father about it. Because if she had, he would have killed us for fighting. Okay? So she did that over and over and over again. She protected us, she kept us from killing each other, and she raised us really m more than my father because as a doctor he just was so busy and he was the only country doctor on the uh, windward side of the island for 45 years and all that. So anyway, now the central motto of the family which you'll be working on yourselves. So this is the identity of the family. It's actually hanging here because it is the marketplace of ideas. So how did this manifest in my family? We're a very traditional family, very traditional. The family that eats together loves together. And we always ate dinner together, always. My father required it. You could not be away from dinner. It had to be a nuclear holocaust for you to have an excuse not to be at dinner. And of course, he would sit at the head of the table, just like you're sitting there, Chris, and we would all sit around, and my father would dish out the food. Whether you were the last person getting the food or the first person getting the food was crucial in that situation. If you were the last, uh, chances are you wouldn't get seconds, so everybody ate really quickly so that they might be able to get seconds. I often didn't get seconds. It was very sad, but my brothers protected me, you know. But the most important thing that happened around the dinner table were the arguments that we had about everything. We argued everything, politics, economics, social conditions, the current events of the day, we argued constantly. And the thing that drove us all nuts was that at the end of the argument, my father would always say, well, in the end, I'm right. And then he would get up and go off and do his work. Didn't matter if he was wrong. He was right, drove us crazy. So we learned how to argue in the marketplace of ideas, which was the dinner table, and that's really the family identity. Still to this day, when we get together, it can't, it can't ever be just the casual, hey, how you doing kind of dinner. It's always gotta be some big argument over something, water rights in Hawaii, or you know, Hawaiian sovereignty, or fishing problems with you know, overfishing, or some such, or something like that. Anyway, so. There's the shield, and I hope that kind of gives you an example of what we're looking for, but obviously you get to, this was done a long time ago, you could do it um, in, in a more interesting uh, graphic way. But the presentation of it should be a model for you. Okay. All right. So having understood that in fact heraldry is going to be a major part of uh, this medieval period, then we can move forward from that and begin to look a little bit at the content. Okay. So as I said before, the lights go out with the fall of Rome. And for a period roughly between 400, 500 AD and 800 AD, 
things are pretty chaotic, but again, it's arguable, so you want to ask just why people call that a dark age, that 500 years. But at some point, well, really in the, in the late 700s, so the 8th century, a very powerful figure emerges, and he's one of the few people I would want you to actually pay attention to and to take some notes on, and that's Charlemagne. Um, he figures very large in movies and literature because he's such a powerful figure. In a sense, he's like the rebirth of a, Ro of a good Roman emperor. And what he does is for the first time, he turns the lights back on in Europe, and he brings some measure of order to the chaos and creates some measure of stability in a very difficult environment that Europe had become. So he's a very powerful leader. He's a very strong Christian. Christianity is now fully enmeshed in the fabric of Europeans' lives. He's really the first to turn the lights back on. He created the so-called Carolingian Empire, and he's crowned by the Christian Pope in Rome, Pope Leo III, as the first Holy Roman Emperor. In other words, the Church confers authority on him to essentially rule all of what is now France and part of Germany today. It's quite a remarkable thing. And so he's a secular authority blessed by clerical authority. So what does that mean exactly? So if you look at this image, and if this was part of your DBQ, you'd be studying a couple of things here. First of all, what's in his hand here? The sword. The sword is secular, secular meaning of this earth, your civic authority. So the sword is his authority over man. What is this? The Christian cross, which means that he has both clerical, Christian authority, and secular authority. So for us today, you, you guys know how infused you are with the idea of the separation of church and state. Here we have the connection of church and state in a very powerful way. And the issue of the connection of church and state in a single ruler is something that we're going to consider really carefully over time, all the way through until the end of the course, really. Okay? So Charlemagne is the first to fuse those two together and to um, use that authority, both clerical and secular, to bring a measure of stability. So here's the general point. The general point is mm, when the ruler is a good ruler, a benign ruler, a benevolent ruler, a good ruler, things usually work out okay when you put both secular and clerical authority together. But if you get a rotten one, it, the secular and clerical authority can often be used in some very evil ways to oppress people, and that's what we're going to consider over time, okay? But he's a, he's a crucial figure, Carol, uh, uh, Charlemagne. My brother, David, played him in a Hawaii uh, theater for youth uh, play. I still remember at Diamond Head Theater watching my brother suddenly emerge at this high tower that was on the stage wearing his Charlemagne's crown and holding a sword. I'm like, wow, that's my brother up there, and he's Charlemagne. He'll probably want to beat me up when, when he gets home because he thinks he's now the ruler of everything, you know? Anyway, I had these worries when I was a kid. Okay, so you kind of get a sense from that little clip of how important Charlemagne was to this so-called concept of, or this concept of the so-called lights coming back on, okay? And there's so much more about him that might be of interest to you if you wanted to pursue it. Okay, so just real quick to finish up with Charlemagne. This is the Frankish kingdom just prior to Charlemagne's becoming the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, this is crucial for one particular reason, okay? So today, this is obviously France. 
and the French believe that they've always been French. We French, we've always been here. Since time began, we've been here. We are special people, baguettes and that kind of thing, right? Quiche, baguettes and quiche. This is so much baloney, it makes my head spin. Because in fact, the people of France are really more Germanic than they are anything else. It's the Germanic Franks who come and settle in this area in the great barbarian invasions who ultimately turn Gaul into a Frankish kingdom with Charlemagne at the head of it and then later after he dies it becomes fractured amongst his sons. But really these are more Germanic people than they are anything else. So really the French have no claim to any kind of ethnic line that goes back to the beginning of time. They're really as much Germanic as anything else, which should give you pause about anybody who claims ethnic descent, like Americans who say, yes, America, it's always been here since, you know, or America. I don't know how you do the accent. America, America's always been here since the beginning of time. No, I don't think so. There's really only a couple cultures that can claim that, the Japanese, Scandinavian countries that can claim that common descent going back into time. No, but the, but the actual Japanese ethnicity goes all the way back in isolated time, all the way back to the beginning. Because of the islands, they're one of the few cultures that can actually claim that. Yes, they've been occupied. Yes, they've, but they have mixed less with people than practically any other culture on the planet. Okay, so we just note that the Frankish kingdom replaces Roman Gaul, and it becomes, Frankish becomes France and France becomes one of the modern nations of the day. Okay, now, just when you thought the lights had come back on again with Charlemagne, yay, they go back out again, okay? Because we get the Viking invasions, and the Vikings have been long considered in literature and in film. They're, um, the, you know, the great, uh, tall Viking, uh, it's, it's your heart's desires to meet a Viking, tall, blonde guy. Nordic type skis, you know, uh, likes cold and that kind of thing. Anyway, warrior culture coming from Scandinavia. The thing to note about the Vikings, though, is how heavily they were stereotyped by people over time. That the Vikings really ended up with the stereotype of being violent uh, rapers and pillagers, when in fact the majority of them were just Scandinavian people who were beginning to feel a population. Uh, pressure and a, a pinch for resources and moved out of Scandinavia and came down to the south looking for farmland and for wives and families and an opportunity to settle in a place that was different. Um, so we have to be careful of those stereotypes. But yes, they did raid Europe and yes, they, they did some pretty serious evil damage to the Europeans in these raids as they came down from the north. But eventually, they, they settled all throughout Europe, and that's why you get people of mixed uh, Frankish, uh, Germanic, uh, uh, Italian, and even Viking or Scandinavian stock in Europe. And you can see that sometimes real clearly if that gene plays itself out uh, very clearly. So obviously that was a Viking longboat. Okay, so here's a quick map of how the Vikings actually came down. Pretty extraordinary distance when you think about it. And imagine that Nordic type who's grown up in bitter cold all of his life, coming around the corner of, of uh, Spain here and arriving in the Mediterranean. And all hot and sunny, he must have wanted to take off his coat right away and go, where's the beach, right? 
So as they came, as they came into the Mediterranean, that was really as far south as they came. Um, so for a period of time, a couple of hundred years, the Vikings are, a, are a, an influence that bring a tremendous amount of chaos and death and destruction. Um, arguably, the lights go back out again. And then just as quickly, they go back up north, many of them, or they settle down and that whole violent period comes to an end. Okay, now we come to the very central concept that you must know. This is the heart of this whole period that we're in right here, and it is feudalism, okay? So your college professors are going to expect that you know this concept when you arrive in, in, in college. Uh, your graduate professors will expect that you know it. The term shows up all the time in the media. People say, oh, this is such a, this policy is so feudal. If you don't know this policy, you're really missing something important here, this concept. Sorry, so you really got to know it. So basically, it's, it's a political, economic, and social system in which land is allocated in exchange for loyalty. And its purpose is to bring some measure of order in a very chaotic world in which relationships were tenuous and the weave was constantly being ripped and broken. And if you were going to survive, you needed to know who your friends were, right? You got to know who your friends are. So the obligations of feudalism were clearly defined for all the participants. And it really grew out of that old Roman practice of granting offices to people who were your friends. We still see that today all the time in our, in our politics. And it really develops as a means of protection and defense. Okay, so real quick, uh, Chris, come around real fast over here. Just do, I wanna do a quick demo. <clears throat> so kneel down right here. Kneel down on one knee. And just do a quick demo of what feudalism is, okay? I am the king and you are my knight. Okay, and I knight thee, and I grant you a portion of my lands. Okay, go and be loyal to me. Do you swear that loyalty? I swear that loyalty. That's feudalism right there. Thank you. You can take your chair back and uh, go back and sit on your lands there. Okay, it's that simple. So what is my expectation? that she'll be loyal to me. And especially in times of war, if I need her, she will be there. What is her expectation of me? That I will protect her, that I will grant her the land, and I will also grant her the, op the opportunity to divide her lands amongst the many tenants that she can receive the, the fruit of the lands from. So it ends up looking very much like a pyramid with me at the top and all the various levels of vassals. These are the people who are loyal to me, knights, and other aristocracy, and then moving down to that vast group at the bottom, which is the peasantry, the common people. So it's a, it's a relatively simple concept, but it has such a loaded meaning to it. So if you hear, you know, land policies out in the Cunia Plain and the Eva Plain out there are so futile, it would suggest to you that somebody is exchanging something out there for loyalty. As in, I'll give you this job as the uh, land commissioner out there, if you'll make sure that I get that piece of land to develop into a strip mall. You get where I'm going with that, right? So this concept of feudalism is fraught with difficulty and we're gonna pay attention to it. Now, on the other hand, one does not want to confuse the concept of feudalism with 
the actual manorial system that existed at this time. So the manor economy, the manor economy was just simply the economic system that the people of Europe lived in. And it simply was this. You had the manor, which was oftentimes, uh, you know, was a castle at the center of it. And the manor economy that revolved around it was agricultural. And what it suggested was that the, the pyramid existed, okay, but we're not in times of war and we don't need that loyalty. It was about what happened, what Chris did with the stool once she got that thief and what she went off and did with it, and what she produced on the land. So unfortunately for Chris, she's one of the great knights. So being a farmer is not particularly her, her thing, is it? Yeah. But she has to do it, right? Because war doesn't happen all the time. But however, when war breaks out, shazam, you're off on your horse, right? And so that's why we get a lot of the conflict that we get, because these, these knights are bored farmers, really. And so we see out of this a number of different units that come out. We see the craftsman. You saw him in the film yesterday, our good blacksmith. You see the serf as laborer or uh, the skyard yesterday, the, the kid who took the sheep out to graze them, the peasantry who worked the land and literally farmed the land. And that's, again, this image here of feudal serfs living and working on a manor. Okay? So the manor economy is the economic unit Feudalism is the concept that binds people together under these oaths of loyalty. Okay? All right. So here it is in its pyramid form. It's pretty simple, actually. The king at the top, he appoints, appointed for protection and to handle all of the territory. The lords, they're appointed to protect both the lord and the king. Knights, appointed to work the land and fight when necessary. And then, of course, that would be all below here would be the serfs. And the question that we have on our minds is, what was the life of labor like? And it's really these people that we're taking into consideration here. We're looking at their lives in particular. So mm, here is a brief film that explains feudalism. Okay, so we're going to come to a close on this particular first half by um, just contemplating the knight, and obviously the knight and the castle are connected together. These were elite military soldiers. They were usually from the noble classes. They were very reluctant farmers. They, were, uh, they went through a, a series of stages of training uh, from the page to the squire to the knight. In fact, there's a famous book by Mark Twain called, um, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, A Knight at, uh, I'm sorry, A Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court. And there's a famous scene in that book where this Yankee who's been thrown back in time to the time of King Arthur is walking down the road and he sees a young boy and he says, he says, who are you, boy? And the boy says, I'm a page. And the man looks at him, the Yankee looks at him and says, oh, go on, you're nothing but a paragraph. <laughs> anyway, that was Mark Twain. All right, so page, squire, and knight. And then the real important concept here is the concept of chivalry. So chivalry has been much misunderstood. Chivalry, everybody seems to think that chivalry revolves around opening the door for somebody uh, who's following behind you as you go into a building. And that's okay that it's turned out to be 
something like that. It's, you know, people think that chivalry is good manners, but in fact, its origin is in the tournaments. That in the, tur the early tournaments of knights, there were no rules, and they were so chaotic and so destructive to life and property and horses and everything else that rules had to be imposed on these tournaments to keep the knights from killing each other. And it was the rules of fair play that were known as chivalry. That's what chivalry is about. So if you're, play, if you're, if you're a volleyball player, the rules say you cannot wear a spiked thing on your elbow and whack somebody as you go over the top of the net and try to take out her face, <laughs> right? I mean, that's not something that you can do. That's what chivalry was about. But it morphed very quickly into something a little bit bigger than just fair play on the tournament uh, field. It actually uh, became uh, connected to love, and it became connected to the idea that knights would often have extramarital relationships, but that the concept of chivalry said that you didn't do that out in the open. You didn't flaunt it. It was done in secret, and that you would take care of this woman. It was, uh, it was not you know, sexual love or even maybe romantic love. It was about taking care of somebody, ergo the concept of the damsel in distress that comes out of this concept of, of chivalry. Um, so it's honor and fair play, but it becomes something more than that. So when you hear somebody referred to as chivalrous, it is, it's very much a compliment. Um, today, it's just the rules that you impose on your boyfriend in terms of how he acts towards you and whether he opens the door for you or or whether he picks his teeth with his knife while you're at, you know, Buca de Beppo or something like that, right? I mean, there's certain standards that you hold him to, um, and that's called chivalry, but it's really much more, much more complicated than that, okay? All right, so here's a clip from First Night. This is the trailer of First Night, which is one of the great first night movies to show up with Sean Connery. The, medi the, the, the medieval period, the Middle Ages, alive and well. Okay, so we finish with, obviously, where we started yesterday, which is the castles. Don't really need to spend too much time on this because the film is um, fully explaining the whole point of the castles, their purpose, um, how they functioned, why they were built, and so on and so forth. So that's all pretty clear. Um, we know that the activity of the knights was centered around the tournament. So I actually have one more small clip to show you. Um, I actually pulled this off YouTube. This is a bunch of modern day knights going at it in a modern day tournament. Watch this. This is in England. Thank <laughs> you. 
So here's the question for you that comes out of that little clip. What is it that people find so fascinating about the medieval period? So much so that they'll go to these kinds of efforts to recreate it in their lives. When you look at literature, films, recreation, societies for creative anachronism where people do reenactments, that kind of thing, so much of that seems to focus on this period. And how curious that what scholars call the Dark Ages seems to be the subject of so much of our literature and film and, and theater and activities. It's a curious thing. It's worth um, considering. Isn't it also a basis for fairy yes, very much. Absolutely very much. So the, uh, the whole Brothers Grimm, the Anderson, Hans Christian Andersen, um, uh, Disney films, so on and so forth. Okay, so what we're going to do uh, the next time when we pick up the second half of this is begin to look more carefully at the church. So this first half really just picks up on that, on that early medieval period when the church is just establishing itself, but it's not fully established yet. Okay, there we go.